Welcome to The Power of Stories, a podcast by women, about women, and for women. Their voices and their stories. I am Sharon Catherine D'Agostino, a passionate advocate for the empowerment of women and girls everywhere and the founder of SayItForward.org. And I'm Yodit Kifle-Smith, a creative dedicated to making sure the voices and stories of women are heard. I have the privilege of working with Sharon on SayItForward.org to do just that. In this podcast, you will meet courageous women from around the world whose unique path to empowerment will leave you encouraged and inspired. Today, we are excited to have Dr. Marilyn Flair joining us from Frankston, Victoria, Australia. Dr. Marilyn is a professor, a researcher, and an author who holds the foundation chair in early childhood education and development at Monash University, where she is also a Kathleen Fitzpatrick Australian Laureate Fellow. Welcome, Dr. Marilyn. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's my absolute pleasure to be with you, Yudit and Sharon. I'm so excited about this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited too. What was your journey like being in spaces that did not expect women to be in education or academia? What was that like for you? One of the things that I've experienced all my life is that I've been in a profession that's been dominated by women, like we are the majority. We've also been silenced, excluded, and um, and really positioned in a very negative way because, because we're women, because we work in early childhood, it's so close to mothering and mothering is not always valued in many communities. And so I've always been in a position where I felt that I have this amazing sisterhood um, with me and I'm part of and we together do things and we nourish each other and support each other and we grow and this is really something to be celebrated. But then when we are within a, the broader community, we're positioned um, as as a group of no worth, as a group, and particularly in education, you know, it's almost as though the younger the child, the the less important the people are that work with them. In 2019, being um, bestowed the award of laureate professor, and in Australia, that's kind of like, you know, winning the Nobel Prize <laughs> um, in education or just in, in scholarship, in academia. Um, so it's a really big thing in Australia. But you should have seen people in my faculty and in my university and in my community. It was kind of like, hello? You know, someone in early childhood got this award? <laughs> it was It was such a shock to them. And the way in which... I had been positioned and then suddenly repositioned because of this accolade. Oh, all these doors all opened up. People started to listen to me. And then I felt this huge responsibility coming back to my sisterhood and wanting to support early childhood education researchers. And we know historically that um, many of the people who go into early childhood education um, globally, but also in Australia, are incredibly capable women. And they treat it as more than a vocation. It's it's a scholarly journey. It's 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 the, the nurturing and bringing and um, 
a development of these young minds into the future, you know, really making a big difference. So they are kicking goals like you wouldn't believe. So I had this huge responsibility having this award um, bestowed upon me because I couldn't mess up. <laughs> you know, I had to make sure that I can make use of this as a as a tool to change how early childhood is is perceived. So when I stand and speak now, I have this weight on my shoulders constantly that I have to make sure <laughs> that, you know, I help the sisterhood to have the value that uh, and be respected in the way that they really do deserve in education and in the community because often people say, oh, early childhood, they just play. And they're not important really and therefore in different communities the salaries are lower, um, the way they're treated is not as, as high as if they are a secondary teacher, for instance, or they're a professor in a university. My view is that that has to change because early childhood education is, is probably, we know from research, actually makes the biggest difference to a community. You educate young girls and take them forward and support them and grow. They, in turn, um, contribute to that community in really productive ways. And we know that through, you know, different um, NGOs have done the work on that. But we also know that there's work that says that there are less incarcerations in a community when you invest in early childhood. You're more likely to own your own home. Whatever measure of value is in a community, when you invest in early childhood and um, support that area, then those young people become amazing citizens. So you won this very prestigious award in your country, and you mentioned that doors opened up for you. People wanted to hear your voice. How did you navigate then this new attention? What I've learned is say yes to opportunities because you don't always know where they'll go. And I've learned that when you say yes, it gives a public voice and because you have a receptive audience. So when you're introduced as a laureate professor, you actually have a voice and it doesn't matter um, what your background is, what um, area. So, so therefore, the, the status of the profession from which you come, so early childhood, is no longer what people look see you as. What they do is they talk to you at this other level. In my particular area, the things that I wanted to make a difference in has been to not only raise the status of the profession and therefore increase the salary of people who work with young children. This is kind of a passion. So <laughs> by the time I die, I'd like to see that happen so that people um, accord status and through financial reward to, a, to this profession so that the lives of, which are primarily women, um, is better and, and the hours are not so long. The, the, you know, working in early childhood education is really hard work and people say it's too expensive. So navigating these spaces is about how to find those openings. So sometimes that might mean a partnering with NGOs. Sometimes it might mean partnering with different um, members of government. And sometimes it might mean um, working with the university group at the high end to take forward certain sorts of messages or 
to um, create new opportunities. The minute you have those doors open and the cracks opened, then you can fill quickly with your colleagues so that because the next part of it is it's it's opening, but the next part is you can't do this alone. And um, so you need a group, you need the sisterhood with you. That's one side. The other side is it also means that the sisterhood receives the mentoring and support and developmental opportunities to grow as well. When you are together, then so much more is able to be done. I can't imagine the the journey prior to that, you know, so you you received the this prestigious award and that opened the door for you in many ways, but getting to that place, what were some obstacles that you faced? I think the first obstacle has always been uh, low expectations. You know, the people around you just have low expectations. And, you know, that, and it doesn't matter how hard you work or what you do, um, when people around you don't even consider that they should be opening a door for you or, um, you know, for opportunity because they just assume, you know, low expectations. You know, this, this is a huge psychological obstacle. The other obstacle that I've experienced as well, this kind of um, objectification of women as, as bodies rather than as minds, I found that really difficult. Uh, and I'll give you a little example. I was talking to my daughter this morning, actually, and I said to her, what made a big difference in your life? Because my, my daughter's amazing. Um, she's a midwife and nurse. And, um, and I was just curious to know intergenerationally what things as she was growing up made a difference because I knew my mother's high expectations of me made a difference and I wondered what she would say. She said, Mum, I remember the story you once told me where you had your photo and your work splashed all over the front of an academic magazine. It was all about really important research around early childhood. You came home and you were devastated because you'd been at a conference and a person, a male, came up and said, oh, we saw your photo. We realised that, you know, your photo on campus review was there because of how you looked. And it was all about how you looked, not actually about what you did <laughs> or the contributions. And, um, and you know, a female splashed on the front cover was all this person could see. And I was just gutted because I thought, how many women experience this, you know, where you're doing really important work and then they objectify you as a female as opposed to a scholar who has something worthwhile to say. And, and to me, that epitomises um, what many women experience because their work is not taken seriously as it should. So when my daughter shared that with me, I thought, wow, yeah, that's so interesting that she remembered that story it's the stories that we share with each other that we remember and they, they're kind of like a narrative. If my daughter can remember that story, um, then that's something that, you know, makes her think about how she interacts with people as well and, and how the sisterhood, you know, interacts with each other too. So I guess that's, a, that's also a, um, a challenge, an obstacle that you have. And I think the third one is the third obstacle is always that you because you're invisible um, you don't get ex the experiences like everybody else does and how can you grow if you're invisible um, and not taken seriously when I think about the obstacles 
And I can think of many of them. Sometimes they're, you know, management obstacles where people are just downright mean and keep you in the mushroom and not give you information so that you may, so that you fail at something because they are a leader and they can't cope with anybody around them who might look better than them, which is the worst form of management because actually a really good manager recognises that the people around them can make them look good and um, and you give them the space to be able to to um, to grow and therefore everybody together can do wonderful things but when i think about the obstacles where people have wanted to put you in a box to tuck you away because you know they themselves are insecure then i've had to sit there and and think what can i do about this and and that adversity I think makes you creative and imaginative and more collegial because you know you can't do it on your own. And I remember one time someone saying to me when I was in this scenario where somebody publicly embarrassed me deliberately at a meeting because, you know, they they had not given me all the information I needed and they came, the group came up to me afterwards and they said, Marilyn, we, we are so sorry that we couldn't stand with you, you know, as, as part of the sisterhood and support you, but that person would attack us if we didn't. And I said, I'm really happy to take a hit for the team because if she's only, in this case it was a she, if she's only attacking me, this manager's only attacking me, then you have space and um, and you're not under siege and you can take things forward. So that was what, that's a fairly punishing kind of way to deal with with obstacles but that's that's just one way of managing something that was horrendously bullish and horrid um, and I survived it <laughs> um, what I did learn was that you've got to find the alternative paths you've got to work out how to go around that person to say what you want so Marilyn an important part of your story as you tell it is that your mom, had higher expectations for you than the community at large had for girls. When did you realize that that was true? Because we were on a farm and my mother worked um, as a farmer and as my father did as a farmer, she was active in the paddocks and, you know, working really hard. And my mother would um, come in and then she'd prepare the meal because that was still the expectation. And my mother would complain bitterly. She'd say, you're just sitting there relaxing. I come in, I having worked as hard as you, I still have to cook the meal, then I have to clean up, and then we go out, and I haven't had a rest. And I can remember thinking, wow, that is so unjust, you know. And and that was really, really empowering for me as a girl growing up, uh, even though my mother still executed aspects of um, what was expected of women to do everything she complained about it and I noticed it and I can remember talking to her about that years later so you asked when did this all happen there were all these little moments that my mother had these gems of wisdom for me and even though she couldn't change it what I could see was that she was sharing with me the injustices of the narratives that surround us the stories that are created for us you know women have to do this kind of thing and she was creating alternative narratives, even though she was still physically doing some of these things. And I think that was really important. What I experienced as a child, as a young person growing up, um, was a meta-narrative in a way of everything that you experience as a, as a girl and as a woman. 
it's constant. You just have to keep being with this, pushing against it like my mother did. And I think the high expectations part um, was there in relation to you can do anything you want to do. And I was the first person in my family to go to university, the first in many ways to, to have those opportunities. I realised also that education changes you. And my mother said to me when I was about eight, she said, no one can take education away from you. When you are educated, you are educated for life. And it doesn't matter what happens, you have that with you all the time to take you forward. So this is a question that we like to ask all of our, our guests, and that is, how can we all encourage other women and girls to confidently use their voice and claim their power? One of the most important things I believe about the power of stories is building the sisterhood for change. It's about dreaming big. And when you dream big, then you look for ways that you can go forward and resource those dreams so they become realities. The most important thing to help women and girls to to dream big and to take it forward and to change the narrative is to surround yourself with people who actually affirm what you're saying and doing. And they resource you through that affirmation. And you in turn resource them because different people at different times will give that moment of bravery that's really needed for change. Don't surround yourself with people that do the opposite, the ones that actually destroy you. And sometimes you have no control over that. When you have no control over it, then then you have to find other ways. And, um, and part of that is finding those other people. And if they don't feel brave and you don't feel brave, you sometimes can, you know, bunker down together and tell the stories to each other and maybe then find some ways to go forward. Dr. Marilyn, thank you so much for sharing your your story with us, your wisdom. I've especially been encouraged by just the power of sisterhood um, in your story. It's really encouraged me. And so thank you for being with us today. And to our listeners, as always, thank you for making the time to listen to this episode of the Power of Stories podcast. Thank you, Judith, for um, inviting me along today. And, um, and I just want to congratulate you and Sharon um, for the work that you are doing to enable people from anywhere around the world to join a podcast and listen to The Power of Stories because it just touches a chord with me and I hope, um, I hope my story today touched a chord with others. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing so much of your story. There are many points that um, have inspired me, and I especially love your uh, encouragement that we can build the sisterhood for good and that we can dream big and say yes to opportunities. These are such important messages for all of us. So thank you, Yodit. Thank you so very much for doing this with me. And we also send thanks out to Lisa DeJavine, who is the co-producer and editor of the Power of Stories podcast. And to our listeners, we invite you to visit sayitforward.org, a place where you are welcome to share one or more stories about your unique path to empowerment. 
or you can read the stories of other women and girls. This is Sharon Catherine D'Agostino and Yodit Kifle-Smith signing off for now and hoping you'll join us for our next episode of the Power of Stories podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, we do hope you'll give us a review and recommend the Power of Stories to a friend. And lastly, we want to remind you of the power of your story.